Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right. Hi, this is Ian Castle, and this is the Acquirers Podcast. I'm stepping in for Tobias Carlisle to interview a very special guest. He's a portfolio manager, a brand builder. He's authored several books on investing, which I'm sure many of you have read. But perhaps even more important, he's a great father, great husband. He hasn't left his family behind on the road to success. You know, it's an honor and privilege to interview the great Tobias Carlisle right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Tobias, thanks for coming on. What a great introduction. Thanks so much, Ian. That's probably the most professional introduction this show's ever had. <laughs> Hey, it's an honor to interview you. And you know, just so the audience knows, you know, I, I decided to turn the tables on you because I've been an admirer of yours from afar. And I think a big reason for that is, you know, I think that you make success look easy. Um, I don't know if it's just the way you look, the way you talk, you know, your books, which are great, they launch this podcast. Um, but I know it hasn't been easy for you. I know it's been a grind, just like it is for anybody building anything. And so you know, I'd like to get into a little bit of that hustle and what it took to get where you are today, and also as well as a lot of other things that I hope uh, maybe you didn't hit on in other interviews. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm ready. Great. Excellent. Well, let's get started. You know, so where are you from? Where did you grow up? I don't think you probably grew up in Alabama or Mississippi <laughs> by your accent. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a little country town in the Australian outback, uh, Roma. It's... When I was there, it was like 6,000 people, and it's like a four or five hour drive to the nearest uh, like big city, which has like 100,000 people in it, so it's not a huge city by any stretch of the imagination. It was very dry kind of uh, country, um, very rural. Like my friends were farmers or, or the kids of farmers or the kids of like uh, kangaroo and pig shooters, and they would turn those into, <laughs> into dog food. <laughs> So, like, it was a funny little town. Like, little town's got a doctor, dentist, accountant, lawyer, teachers. You know, like, like a few kind of. I wanted to do a professional job, but I didn't know what you could do, and I didn't want to do a doctoring because that was that like blood. Accounting looked really boring. Law looked really boring too, honestly. But I had to decide at some stage what I was going to do. And my dad said you should do law because lawyers make lots of money. So that's that's not true. Lawyers don't make lots of money. I discovered after doing it for ten years. But that was basically. So I, I left that little country town, went to university, studied law, got a job in a law firm that was like a big law firm that did mergers and acquisitions, and uh, got transferred to the states uh, after about five or six years. And I met my wife. Um, she was living next door to a girl who I'd worked with in Australia. She came back to Australia for a little while when I worked as a general counsel for this um, company that I'd helped list, which is a really great story. These two guys from another little country town had put in $100,000 each into this thing, listed at like a $10 million valuation, $10 million market cap. So it was a, you know, it was a genuine so micro cap. Pico cap. Pico yeah. cap or something. Yeah. <laughs> tiny thing which you can do in Australia yeah. you can list them 
that early on. You know, the, the rules are, I think you had to raise, you had to have net assets of more than a million dollars, but they raised three in the listing. So that gets you over that, that mark. And then they had built this business, uh, which was like a dark fiber business with internet plumbing, the back end of the, the data centers and a peering exchange and uh, managed service, all those sort of things. And they built that and they eventually got taken out over for like $600 million, I think. And the two guys who ran it made about 120 each. And I made a little bit of money in that too. So I just was trying to work out what I wanted to do. And I thought what I wanted to do was to be an investor. And so there'd been an activist in it who I knew. And I said, you know, you you did some good stuff, but there are all of these buttons that you can press to make life a lot harder for incumbent managements. You know, make them if, if you think they're doing something wrong. So we can, and I can help you do that and you teach me the other stuff. So he agreed to do that. We... I sat there for about 18 months um, learning, you know, like he, he was the real thing. Like he'd go to general meetings, stand up in the general meeting, ask a question, you know, what, why are you, you know, try and get, so this is a, a big part of meeting rules are not really legal. There's a lot of, I um, uh, don't really know what you, what you call it, but if basically if you're, if you're at a meeting, this is, this is just good to know. You want to try and get yourself to be the chairman of the meeting. If you if you chair the meeting, you've got enormous power, and so often you can get there just by you can call for a vote of hands on the floor rather than proxies, which are handed in, and you might be able to get control of the meeting from the floor. Oh wow! So he he tried to do that a few. It didn't ever work, but it, like it created enough noise and got enough attention that it brought some brought some attention to these companies, and they did tend to work out. He's done very well as a result, and so I I was. I realized that I probably didn't have the personality for activism. Just mm-hmm. I, I just care what people think too much. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you need that kind of, <laughs> you, you need that, uh, you know, like uh, ambulance chasing attorney kind of uh, attitude to like being able to inflict psychic pain on other people and not absorb any of it yourself. Just not, not because you're tough, like just because you don't even notice, you know, and, and I do. So, then I, I I set up the I set up the fund. My my wife, my then girlfriend, now my wife, we moved back in December two thousand and eleven to Los Angeles because we were we were getting married and we've since had kids, so it helps to be close to the grandparents. Her her mum and dad are in Los Angeles, so we live about five minutes away, which is fantastic because I've got three kids. So and there's six, <laughs> four, and twenty one months, so we need all the help we oh. can get. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a pretty incredible story. I I always wondered what was the catalyst to make you go from attorney to investing, and I guess it was the you know some of the success you had working as a corporate attorney for that company, that startup that had a successful uh, exit. Part of it also was I had I started work as an attorney in April two thousand, which was like right at the very peak, and I had been you know it was hard to even in Australia there was this big dot com thing going on. They were equally terrible businesses and equally kind of glamorous. You know, everybody wanted to be an entrepreneur, like a dot-com entrepreneur or a venture capitalist. And I was I was doing law and I thought that I was kind of going into this job to do IPOs and, you know, help venture capital and that sort of stuff because that was what, the way they had presented it. But I just didn't realize that that's kind of an unusual part. That's unusual times in the market. Typically what happens is, much more bread and butter is mergers and acquisitions type work. And so you do M&A, um, 
because that that happens all through the cycle and it happens a lot at the at the bottom end of the cycle. So these uh, and at the top end, it happens all the time. But you just overpay more at the top end. Right, so it, right. basically, it collapsed, and I we started doing M and A, and these these guys who were raiders from the 80s came back and they were trying to get control of all these little dot coms. And I just had no idea why. Like, why would you want a business that's losing money? These are terrible businesses. I, I, I don't get it. And it's one of the problems with, you know, I'd read Buffett's letters and I was like, oh, you need a high return on invested capital business with a moat. And, you know, none of these things had anything like that. And of course, all they, all they had was lots of cash on the balance sheet. Like, I was just so focused on one income on the income statement that i just completely missed the fact they had cash on the balance sheet and i was like you know i vaguely remember reading because i had the the uh, the 28 edition of the 34 edition of security analysis what am i saying 34 edition and i remember that there was these chapters right at the back where they talked about the relationship between liquidating value and um shareholder rights so I went back and read that stuff and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And because I'm a lawyer, I know how to do some of this stuff. So next time this happens, I will go and try and find a whole lot of net nets where there's an activist involved. It took took a long time. It took until 2008 for them to sort of really come back. And all of a sudden there were like 300 US net nets and there were activists involved in all of them. And I was like, well, this is as good as it's going to get. So I, I need to go now. All these things are back. So that's when I started running Greenbacked. Okay, okay, and and where did Greenback come from? That's well, you remember that uh, uh, Ashton Kutcher had that show Punked. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, you know, it's like, I thought it's because there's companies that I wanted a net cash, net net, and so I thought it's green, it's backed by Greenbacks, it's backed by cash, and then it was the the funny, uh, probably because the dot com wasn't available, so I got the I just spelt it in the uh, the Punked version. Right. Right. So when you when you you got bit by the value investing bug, you know you were focused on income statements, then kind of switched to the balance sheet, started looking at net nets. You know when did you start? Uh, when did you first discover maybe the acquires multiple or th- start thinking about that? And you know what what time period? And then how did you go, when did you actually actually discover it? When I, I was a real nerd at university, and I used to go into the the business library, and they had all these old um, like Journal of Portfolio Management. And I just used to, if I had a time between classes, I used to get those and just read through them and just see what was in there. And, and it, it's funny, like it was, I was there in the late 1990s and I was looking at these things from 1986 thinking, wow, that's really old. Like I can't imagine that any of this stuff is relevant anymore. And I found an article on talking about how uh, private equity firms or they were leveraged buyout firms found companies to take private based on their uh, enterprise value to EBITDA ratio. And he's, the guy who wrote the article said, you can think about this as the acquirer's multiple because it's what, the, you know, the lower this is, the more they're, they're, more, they're able to buy, the more likely they're able to take it over them. They can do all these things. That I can't find that article. Like that, whoever that guy is, he came up with a term. I didn't come up with a term, but I just have no idea where that's gone because it's not searchable. It's not, it was like an, it was like a, a hard copy thing and I have no idea because I used to go in there you know a few times a week and read a few of these journal mm-hmm. portfolio or whatever and so that, like I've read hundreds and hundreds maybe a, a few thousand of them so I have no idea like I couldn't I have no idea where this idea came from but I saw um, 
I saw the activist guys come back. I saw the private equity guys come back into the market. Private equity got very sexy in the early 2000s, and that was what all of the deals we were doing, private equity deals, were going private and and like little acquisitions and bolt-ons for these private equity type deals. And I, I saw some research uh, called Darwin's Darlings or the Endangered Species List, which Piper Jaffrey, which is an investment bank, put out. And in it, they had listed out all of the. Uh, they were saying there's a bifurcation in the market at the moment. They were talking about that was in the. They're saying all the dot coms have run away from all these other businesses, and they're really good businesses. They're growing like thirty percent a year. You can get them on EV EBIT multiples of three to five times, and and they're buying back stock. And still, nobody loves these things. They're down on a regular basis, which is funny because I thought that's such a weird. We'll never see something like that again in the market. I wish I'd been around to kind of invest during that period, but they had used EV EBIT. And I, so I, I was aware of some research. Uh, the Lofren, Lofren did some, I forget his first name, but they've done some research that came out in about 2009 that talked about EV EBIT and how that was a superior price ratio to book value for the reason that book value just didn't work in like 94% of the market. And then the 6% where it does work, it's, the bid ask spread's just too wide to sort of make. Is it? It's not even clear that it's working there. Whereas EV EBITDA does work really well. You can take any decile of any universe, long and short, and it'll pretty much outperform over it over the back test data. Mm-hmm. So I, I just started. I started using it, and then I saw that. Uh, I remembered that the magic formula had used it as one part of the, the earnings yield. Joel Greenblatt's earnings yield is part of it. So I saw some research by James Montier where he said he thought that the value part of it outperformed the whole value plus quality. And I just started building it up from there. So it's it's a, it's a combination of my background and uh, the research that I was reading to sort of come up with that idea. And, and you started, I think you ran some analysis with Wes Gray. Is that correct? I think I remember in an interview you mentioned. The, the book Quantitative Value has all of the we went and found every bit of industry academic research that we could possibly track down yeah to uh just on fundamental value investment and and tested it just to see what works what doesn't work because one of the funny things like when you look at those altman z or banish or any of those uh things that they use for financial distress or for earnings manipulation and so on um they've all got these weird coefficients in them so, you know, what, you've got to weight this particular thing with this 0.288, which makes no sense. Like, there's no reason why you would weight. So, he's just done a linear regression, Altman or whoever it was, Benish. I forget specifically which one I'm talking about here, but they, they've done a linear regression of companies that have gone bankrupt. And they've said these are the, you know, in their financial statements, the ratios that you can extract from their financial statements. These are the kind of ratios that are associated with approaching bankruptcy or approaching financial distress or earnings manipulation or whatever the case may be. But then they put these weird coefficients on, which probably um, makes sense in the context of a linear regression, but doesn't make any sense you know, going forward. Right. There's no reason why you should weight one of these to some weird three decimal place coefficient. So some of them still work. That, that even though I think it's, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this wrong a little bit, but I think Altman Z, there has there have been various iterations of it. It was originally just for manufacturing, and then they came up with one for non-manufacturing companies, 
and then they've it's varied as it's gone along but it's still even though it's not it doesn't make perfect sense from a um like a pure academic perspective it is still pretty good at identifying these companies that are going to go through are going through this financial distress and i think that's just because it's looking at you know are payables outstanding growing that's probably not a good sign what are they what's the quick ratio what's the acid ratio right. stuff like that like if that's blowing out if that's getting worse that's not a good sign so it's stuff like like what's the asset turnover and so on so all those things they do kind of add something i think you mentioned some of the back tests in in your book and it's a wonderful book i've read it three times twice before preparing that i Read it again, preparing for this interview. Um, but you've done some back tests against Joel Greenblatt's formula, which you just mentioned. You know, and it really just trounced the magic formula. Maybe, why do you think it? Uh, why do you think it outperformed so greatly over the magic formula? Well, just so so the idea is that the magic formula is this equal weight of EV EBIT, which I call the acquirer's multiple, and and Greenblatt uses the inverse of that, and he that, that's his earnings yield. Um, which is basically like a, a, a look-through PE ratio that just includes the cash on the balance sheet or debt and uses EBIT rather than the bottom line earnings. But then he combines it with this return on invested capital, which is what Buffett says you should be looking for. And to give Greenblatt credit, he dissected what Buffett has said and then created this very simple quantitative application of that idea and tested it, and it works. It does outperform. And we ch- we tested it again in quantitative value and doing all of the things that make it difficult for a strategy to outperform, like market capitalization, weighting the holdings so it makes it comparable to a well-known index like the S&P 500. Um, we also lagged the data, so we assumed that you weren't allowed to trade until June on the K data, so on the annual data. Okay. Which And then the, the database is already point in time. So you sh- that that should mean that there's no. It's not like a. This is a common thing. That there's some look ahead bias, in in back tests that they it, they presume knowledge. The system you don't know that the system is trading on knowledge that it doesn't have, or information it couldn't have possibly had at the time. So, even trying all of those things, the magic formula does outperform a comparable index because value outperforms. And then, the question becomes: What is driving the outperformance? Is it the fact that it's that value plus quality, or value plus return on invested capital, or is it something else? And so, when you devolve the two down and you test each side independently, what you find is that the value part of it delivers more than a hundred percent of the return to the magic formula, and the quality side, the return on invested capital, detracts from the returns. Hmm. And the reason I think is that. You know the market is the business is very competitive. As soon as a business sees another, that it's easier somewhere else, it's easier to make money. In some somebody's earning super normal profits, they're getting much more than their cost of capital. Then competitors come in and they try to compete for that money, and that's basically microeconomics. They push down the profitability of those companies, and the reverse happens too. So in industries where they're going through a tough time, the weak hands get forced out first. And then there are other businesses that, you know, we just don't need to be in this vertical or this line because it's easy to make money somewhere else. So let's just forget about this one. We'll take the assets out. And it gets to this point where all the capital's been taken out of the industry. There's not many competitors around. They get a little bit of a tailwind rather than a headwind and they start making super normal profits for a short period of time. I mean, that's just the business mm-hmm. cycle. That's mining companies. Right. Uh, you know, advertising companies are cyclical. Any, anything that's cyclical looks like that. 
And it's a very small handful. It's about 4%. Michael Moberson has done the research that resists this mean reversion in any sort of 10-year period. And that he, he looks at the indicia. There are various things he's still not been able to resolve and I've talked to Michael, it, it'll, it will have come out by the time this podcast comes out, but I talked to, I've interviewed Moberson on the podcast. We talked about it quite a bit because it's something I'm fascinated in, this uh, idea that return on invested capital, because it's, it's something that a lot of value guys who've read Buffett focus on. And I, I think there are better ways of finding quality in a business. And I think that one of the things that people miss is that it's a highly mean reverting factor. And if you're trying to buy things on the basis of this very high return on invested capital, your base rate is quite low. Or you, you just need to be aware that that is the case. So when you're buying these things, you, you factor into your model some mean reversion in return on invested capital. Or you have a really good argument for why mean reversion won't apply in the instance that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. I mean, And so I guess when you looked at sort of the back tests of the acquirer's multiple, was the outperformance generally tied toward, towards one area of the market cycle? Or was the kind of outperformance more general? It's pretty consistent. Period? It's pretty okay. consistent, but there are notable cycles where it, doesn't, where it doesn't outperform. And the notable cycles are where the stock market is in, um, is closer to the peak. So the last few years of the boom, value tends to underperform. And I don't really know why other than it's just not that it's, you know, value stocks are definitionally not the glamorous end of the market. They're the things that aren't getting any attention or flows. And so, and probably value investors are a little bit more disciplined than the average investor. And so they don't, the bid goes away after a while for some of these stocks. So they just, the value stocks drift sideways and then sell off before the market sells off. And I think that that's, that's what you saw that in the late 1990s value doing very poorly while the market rocketed ahead, but it's also happened in the sixties and it's happened in fifties. It's happened in various other notable stock market booms. So, um, then it conversely value recovers first value tends to get its bounce three to six months before the market does. And so value can be going ahead while the market's falling. And, uh, that's the time when it works best. Okay. And, and how do you how do you exactly how do you find these companies? Is it just through a you know quantitative screen, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, so I start with the screen. Um, this, this, one thing that I've learned after a decade of screening is that the first time you run a screen, you have a really great idea for something. Build the screen, run the screen, uh, you know, build it, back test it. Back test could be quite good. Mm-hmm. Then run it for now. And it'll spit out this gobbledygook, like the list of names that you go through and you just can't understand how, how do these names get through this screen? It makes no sense because they're all obviously not viable ideas. And so it's been a long time for me going from just to run the screen and get an output of names to um, don't try and optimize the back test. Try to create something that is sensible, that is the way that you would invest and then do you get an output of names from that that are all pretty good opportunities? So I tend, so from the screen to the portfolio, I think that I cut out about ten percent of names, ten or fifteen okay. percent of names. And the difference is often that I do this forensic accounting diligence and I look at are there cash flows matching? Are there are there cash flows real? Is the economic picture that the financial statements paint true for this business? And there are lots of businesses that fool it. So. Uh, insurance companies fool it, financials fool my screen. So it, I'm always extra careful with the analysis of those. 
through this second process. And then, you know, I do a little, a very, very simple DCF on every one of them just to see is it, is it a, is the reason that these things are so undervalued because the, the, uh, the decline in like the negative growth is so bad that they can never come back again. I've never found anything just because they're all so cheap on a multiple basis, on a yield basis, that even negative growth often means that they're still undervalued. And I think a lot of what you're trying to do as a as an investor is to find these things that are, what's the reason that these things are neglected? It's because it looks like they're in terminal decline. And I think that, that really it's not a terminal decline. It's a It's just a regular part of the business cycle. And now's a really good time to get them while they're cheap relative to depressed business. So I try and get them at that stage. Some of them are going to be mistakes, like half of them through any given rebalance period are mistakes because the, the it's not at the bottom of the cycle There's, or they're genuinely in terminal decline. But that's okay because the ones that work work so much better than the ones that don't work because there's already very low expectations for these businesses. So when they don't work, right. they're sort of like, that's kind of what we thought you were already. And when they do work, it's a big surprise to the market. you know. So there's a big change in the in the price. Over the full data set on average, um, that's that's sort of and that's that's pretty typical asymmetric returns that people expect to find in value, and I find it's true. And you, in your book, you you also talk about how position sizing and rebalancing, you know, when done correctly, that should you know a big part of your performance actually comes from that. You know, I'm curious how do you, how have you decided on the amount of positions in the strategy, you know, position sizing and and when to rebalance. So I wrote a book called Concentrated Investing because I was interested. You know, there are two arguments for how you concentrate or uh, how uh, diversified you should be. And there's the academic approach to it. And what they're trying to do is eliminate non-diversifiable risk, which is eliminate diversifiable risk. But Sorry. So what they're saying is you, you, if you create a portfolio, how can you make your portfolio track the market as closely as possible with the fewest number of stocks? And they find that by the time you get to 30, there's really no marginal benefit to adding a stock beyond that. Value investors have got a different approach to it but it should be somewhat informed by that other idea. Because if you think about it, it's true. I mean, if you take a random sample of stocks, what is the chance that you either outperform or underperform? I mean, it's, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a sampling, it's a statistical sampling question. Right, you should be right. able to create something that looks roughly like the market. So what's, what number of draws from the hat have you created something that is a... Uh, is a market portfolio. And then you think, well, how do I then go about creating something that doesn't track the market portfolio? Well, you need to do, you need a value tilt or you need some sort of tilt to the portfolio that you're creating. But then that creates another problem where you, now you're buying these companies on a value tilt. What's the appropriate number to sort of capture the underlying phenomenon that you're trying to express? So the value guys have sort of fallen out. There's the Buffett approach, which they say is to apply some version of Kelly. Kelly's really tough to apply, I think, because you, you can get the edge over odds by what the market is implying, what your what you, that, that and your own personal information is your own valuation, and that that's the difference between where your where the market thinks it is, where you think it is. That's your private information, so you can derive edge over odds and make a Kelly weighted bet. The problem is that Kelly is created for guys playing blackjack in sequence, right? So they get one hand, make a decision toss the hands keep on keep on going like that whereas in the market you're playing all of your hands at once all the time 
And if you're in playing all of your hands all at once, that definitely changes the sizing of the position. So a 40% position might make sense in isolation, but if you've got three 40% positions, you're not going to leave your portfolio because Kelly never risks ruin. That's the most important rule. So you have to scale them down. And then when you start doing that, you think, well, I've got to include any positive expectation bet, which could be, maybe I need some exposure to treasuries. Maybe I need some exposure to gold. Maybe I need emerging markets. And then that scales everything down again. And if you're genuinely applying those rules, to, if you're genuinely doing that, you get to this point where your portfolio looks more like a traditional value investor's sort of 20 to 30 positions. Maybe you're weighting the bigger ones 5 or 6%. Maybe you're waiting the smaller ones, 3%. And then I'm short as well. So my shorts are, uh, we can talk, I can talk a lot about the shorts, but the shorts are. No, I, I actually wanted to, because I saw you were, in, you, were, you were in 30 longs, 30 shorts. And you know, I'm just curious, were you able to, are you able to run back tests on that? I'm curious how much of the app performance came from the short book. So the shorts, I, uh, the shorts I do two things. So the way that I think about the portfolio, because it's one thirty thirty, there's a 100% net long portfolio there. It's just like a traditional value investing portfolio. Then there's another market neutral portfolio that's 30 long and 30 short. And so that market neutral portfolio, the way that it makes money is it's just the arbitrage between the two sides. So the shorts come down faster than, or the shorts come down, the longs go up or some variation of that. Then you get, um, you should get some outperformance. And most of the time, that's what happens on average. So it depends a little bit on what part of the market cycle. So this part of the market cycle has been really fun for shorting because there's stuff out there that because the, the momentum is breaking a little bit and that's kind of the mm-hmm. value guys don't like shorting, I've found, because value is not a great way of shorting. You see something like Beyond Meat, that's a crazy valuation probably for something that is, doesn't really have any competitive advantage. There's already lots of competitors rolling out. There are competitors out there right now, Impossible Burger and so on. It's not healthy. It's not good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's better for the planet. I don't know. There, 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 I, I'm, not, I'm not excluding it as a – I'm not ignoring it as a business. I'm just saying as, a, as an investment proposition, um, the, it doesn't look – that attractive to me but then does that mean you want to go and short it like where's your valuation for it i don't know but it could be 10 times overvalued but david einhorn makes the great point that 10 times overvalued is silly but 20 times overvalued or 30 times overvalued is no more silly it's just still silly right you're blown out of your position if you're if you're in that for that part so you need to find a way to time the shorts a little bit better and they need to be smaller to be to be risk managed properly so one of the things i look for is you know, the terrible balance sheet, um, losing free cash flow. So they've got the ticking time bomb there. They have to do something. And the way that they're financing themselves is by raising debt and equity. And if I say that, everybody immediately can think of like 20 names that fit that bill that are up 30% a year. Because when the market's still in love with the story, it doesn't really matter. As long as they can survive and they can keep on raising, do a little placement, do a little capital raising, raise a little bit of debt, they're going to be okay until that spigot gets turned off. But the moment that that does, then they become a much more interesting proposition. And I think the way that you find that is the momentum's broken. So there's just no no more momentum in the stock. It's just not up over 12 months. And if that happens, that's when I sort of initiate a really small little short position just to see what happens. So we did that with Netflix. Um, Netflix has been a widow maker trade, but Netflix has had this enormous momentum for the last six, eight years and it doesn't have it anymore. 
It's true of Tesla. Uh, it's true of Canada Goose, which is a new one I've, I've got on. Canada Goose, you know, that's it's not a software as a service business. It's a $500 jacket in a weakening economy with, with not a great balance sheet. So that's one of the ones that I've, I've put on. Um, so that's what we're looking for. They're, they're all pretty similar stories that once glamorous growth stories that had an unlimited runway that have probably run out of runway. So it seems like you've discovered this simple formula that beats the market, you know, since the 1973 or whatever in your back tests. And, you know, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds like the Holy grail of investing, quite honestly, you know, what are maybe, what are some of the issues that you've found with the, with the acquires multiple versus not, maybe not issues, but well, it does have, I mean, it's, it's still a value strategy. It's still tied to what value does. And there are periods of time, long periods in, in time and the last 10 years have been one of them where it underperforms and people, think that value investing itself is ridiculous it clearly doesn't work it's if you look back over the last 30 years now it's probably had five or ten years of outperformance and 20 years of underperformance because that includes the late 1990s worked in the early 2000s hasn't really worked since 2010 so it's i think that it's just the acquirers multiple is just a if we tested if we test all of the price ratios it has tended to be the best one it's still a value ratio. It's it's not going to do anything magical, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's going to tr- right. it's pretty good at finding undervalued companies in aggregate over time. It's going to work, but there are long periods where it doesn't work, and it requires some discipline. And it's hard it's hard to it's hard to buy some of these stocks because I can look at them. I know what's wrong with them. I've got, I know they've got a problem. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know if it's going to get better. I'm just betting on the fact that the price that they're offered at right now is such a weird price for them that they're either priced as if they're going to zero or there's something a little bit better can happen and then you get such a big return. Although that hasn't been the case for the last few years. They just sort of, I buy them and they keep them going down. And, and that's not the short. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue to your... Could you talk a little bit about the benefits of, of an ETF against maybe an SMA or a fund? The ETF, so there are two types of ETFs, so active and passive, and they have slightly different tax treatments. The only difference in practical terms is that the passive ETF has to follow an index, so you can create an index. So there's some argument, you know, there's always some argument, are passive investments better than or worse than active? It's a funny kind of question because the, the, the definition of passive is not what you think it is. Passive just means that it's tracking an index, and an index can be you can self-index, you can create an index of positions in a portfolio. So you could be running a portfolio, have that turn into an index, have somebody follow that index. That's now that person following that index is investing passively. Even though there's an enormous active share in that portfolio. And so active share is just the difference between an S&P 500 market capitalization weighted index and some group of stocks selected from that same 500 universe. So if you hold five stocks equal weight, with a value tilt out of the S&P 500 universe, you're going to have enormous active share. But if those five stocks are tracking another index, then they're technically passive. So it's active uh, share is what you want because that's what leads to outperformance. It also leads to underperformance. So there has to be a good reason why you're diverging from the index. Value is a good reason to diverge from the index. So it should deliver performance over time. 
Um, the advantage of an ETF really is twofold. So if it's this passive ETF, then it has capital gains tax advantages. You don't get um, flow through. So if, I, if a manager sells an underlying position, the holder of a mutual fund or a managed account will incur the tax on the, on the basis of that sale if it's in a taxable account. In an ETF, that's not the case. If they're managed properly with this create redeem function, they're able to okay. eliminate the capital gains. And it's very liquid. If you open up your brokerage account, you can type in the ticker. You can invest directly like a stock. You don't have to fill out forms, which you do with a mutual fund or a managed account. And if you want to fire your manager, you just open up your brokerage account and sell it all. Yeah. So what's the process like for launching an ETF? And and what's the break-even point you know, in assets that you need just to kind of break even as an ETF. It varies because there's lots of different ways of implementing it. So you can you can if you own your own trust, that might cost that could cost a million dollars and your operating cost might be three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. You could be a sub advisor to somebody else who's an advisor and you might not have any co- you might not have any cost at all. The advisor is taking all the costs. So you I the, you know there have been issues with advisors firing sub advisors. So uh, the the guy the hack ETF pretty famously got they had a, they just changed the index so the guy who came up with the index wasn't getting paid anymore and there've been other examples where people have t- created a successful ETF and then lost it because somebody further up the food chain was able to kind of figure out a way to cut them off so it's uh, it's important I think if to to make sure that your manager or the manager of the ETF is an advi- is the advisor. Because then they are their their destiny is in their own hands, and then the question of break even is kind of like where are the fees and what are the underlying costs? So the underlying costs can be three hundred to sort of four hundred thousand dollars a year for an ETF, and then the fee on top of that. So fees are typically sort of fifty basis points to maybe uh, one and a half basis points. Uh, sorry, one and a half points, and so the the break even somewhere between. Uh, you know, it could be it could be eighty on the high end, and it could be sort of twenty five on the low end, something like that. Okay, okay. No, thanks for sharing that. I was always curious. It's it's a new world for me when we talk about ETFs. I know it's more your world, but <laughs> some of the <laughs> listeners probably like a little of the detail too. Uh, maybe switching to a couple investing questions. You know, when I was preparing for the interview, you know, a couple of top topics kind of popped into my head. You know, you. You also invest in individual companies, obviously, through your strategy, but also um, probably before then in individual equities. You know, what stock was your biggest winner? Um, and maybe what stock was your biggest loser? Or maybe some of the lessons that you learned from both of those well, it's the, scenarios. It's, it's the biggest loser that I had publicly was Seahawk Drilling. And Seahawk, okay. they, they made these uh, jack-up rigs in the, and they had this, this fleet of uh, oil rigs in the Gulf of... Uh, Texas, that's a, in that in that region, and uh, oil got destroyed, and they kind of traded down well below, like they were ten cents on the dollar for these rigs. And I'm a deep value guy. At that stage, I was sort of more of a liquidation style investor. This would have been 2008, something like that. And I thought this is probably as good as it gets for this style of investing. Even though these things aren't cash flowing, there's this very significant uh, asset value here. So I put on a position. It kept on going against me. The, the guys who were running the business were saying, this is one of the best markets ever for buying rigs. We're looking forward to buying more rigs because you can go out and get these rigs for 10 cents on the dollar too or whatever it was, 50 cents on the dollar. But meanwhile, these guys are selling rigs to fund operations. So I should have, uh, 
I should have figured out at that stage that they probably weren't being completely forthright about how the business was going, but I held on to it and I, 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 I think it was ultimately, uh, it ultimately went into bankruptcy. I didn't write it all the way into the bankruptcy, but it was still like an 80 or 90% loss. So it was like, yeah. it, I might as well have hit, held it all the way into bankruptcy. And then the best one I've had, a, I've had, I've had a few, I've had a few 10 baggers. Uh, I've had a few, I think my biggest one was, I'm just blanking on the ticker a little bit at the moment, but I can tell you that I can tell you the story. So it, it was a, it was an activist position and it had $2.10 in cash and it was trading at 70 cents. And they, they had an activist uh, who was trying to get them to give back the cash. But in the meantime, they had this drug candidate with the FDA, which nobody thought was going to go through. And that was why I was trading it, you know, one third of cash backing. And then I, w- I was in Australia at the time and I woke up one morning and I, I checked the brokerage account and it was, and it was, or I took, I checked my screen and it was $7. And I was like, how is that? Oh, there's something, I got the decimal place wrong here. And then I, I realized oh, no, overnight these guys have found, like the drug has actually got through the phase two trial or whatever. And so it was up like 10x. And then I was basically woke up, went to the office and by the time I got to the office, it was up like 11, t- it was, it was at $11. And so I was, oh, wow. I was just desperately trying to sell as much as I could. So I think my average sale price through there was, was somewhere between like seven and $11. So it was, it was more than a 10 bagger over like a five or six month period. Unfortunately for me, it's, it's really good evidence that I had no idea what I was doing. That I, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but I was going to leave. <laughs> I, I made money, but I was completely wrong. Like the analysis was just wrong. So I, <laughs> but neither of those stories that like the, the one that didn't work out was purely my fault the one that did work out just all luck <laughs> you're being honest <laughs> you know, but one of the interesting thing is like you know, the biggest returns in the market often comes from value situations that turn into growth situations you know but it's hard for value investors to to hold on to growth you know we talked about that before we even got on this podcast you know when you buy something because it's cheap it's hard to hold on to it when it isn't cheap and yet you know the latter part is kind of where the big money is made and i think it's easier for growth investors to identify and participate in value probably more so than it is for value investors to feel comfortable with growth um, and I'm just curious how you feel about that. Yeah, I agree. That's I think that that's absolutely spot on. Every time I've, I think that the best thing that I could have done was just buy positions and never sell them. And I think you get some that will not work out, and some that you could have sold at a bump, like it, it was up fifty percent inside your time frame, got to value, you should have sold it, and then it traded back down to where you held it or something like that. I'm sure that that happens all the time, but you do get these businesses that go from being in a lot of trouble to being very good businesses seven or eight years later and they're up so much more over that period that I don't think that uh, it really matters that you hang on to the ones that don't work. I think that you get better returns probably by just holding for longer and longer. I think it's incredibly hard to do behaviorally because you beat yourself up so much for the ones that don't work out. Or the ones that you, you had the opportunity to... You, your analysis was right initially. You got the little bump to value that you're expecting. You didn't take... You didn't sell it out at that stage or you were too... You thought that something better was coming. You traded back down. So you feel like you've made a mistake. But I think that the best returns are always from coffee can type portfolios where you put on whatever yeah. positions then you just forget about them. That's probably the best thing you can possibly do. Like here's your Here's your time capsule for 2019 
put the stocks in there and then don't check it for 10 years and then do the same thing again the next year. Yeah, we see that on Microcap Club. We have a member ranking. And basically the member ranking is just you're as a member you profile stock ideas and your starting price is the day you profile it. And your member ranking is just the cumulative return of everything that you profiled since you profiled it to the end of last month. It's just the it's a very easy way. So if you profiled three companies and let's say company A is up 100%, company B is up 50%, and company C is down 50%, your member ranking is 100. Right. It's just a very simple formula for that. And you can go in there and see what the member rankings are. I think Connor Haley. Uh, he was on last week. Yes, he'll, he'll be in your program. Yeah, I think it's at 4,000, you know, so it's basically 4,000 percentage points of gains he's profiled. That's a 40 you know, bagger. Yeah, and like number two is Paul Andreoli, he's at 3,000. Mike, uh, my partner at Microcap Club, I think he's four. But anyway, I think I'm up to number four for some reason. But anyway, you know, what's interesting is when I looked at that, even for my own personal well-being, is just like, you know, I start thinking, if I would have just held on to everything that I ever profiled, even on Microcap Club, and never got involved with it, you know, it would have been an exceptional return. Yeah. And, so, and oftentimes when you get involved with things, you know, like you were saying, sometimes it's easier to have a coffee can approach to, <laughs> to some of these things. And there's, so, there's, no, yeah. there's no taxable event there either. I mean, I, I tell the story all the time. I had this friend in, we were in university, and he was the guy who introduced me to security analysis. And I think he said, Warren Buffett's the richest man in the world. He runs an insurance company. This, this is sort of what he was telling me at the time. Like, I was like, well, I don't want to run an insurance company. That's, it's like saying the richest man in the world is, you know, it's Bill Gates. He runs a, a computer company. He runs, I was just like, well, you know, good for him. He created, that's, that's fantastic. And he said, no, no, he's written these letters. You can go and read. He tells you how to be an investor. So he went and looked at them, got security analysis. He actually went and invested on the basis of, basically just trying to find stuff that was cheap but he he was using these these uh australian version of it was i think it's called huntley's and it was like a phone book and each page had a different because this is like pre all this stuff being on the internet that's how long ago this is it was like the 1987 or something like that it's getting pretty close to being on the internet but you could buy this little phone book and each page had the stock a listed stock on it and basically what it had was the share price and you could see that up and down and then I think it had the earnings plotted for 10 years and his whole thing was he'd just go through and he'd find where the share price had you know fallen off a cliff but the underlying earnings were still sort of chugging along and he bought a few of these and the first few that he bought I think one went from 70 cents to 20 cents and the other one halved and then one that he wanted to buy went up might have doubled and he didn't and he hadn't bought it so he's just like oh, I don't know what I'm doing this is all stupid and he and he just forgot about it and he, the positions wow. were still in the account but he went and did other things and he came back to it like it was probably the mid 2000s and he looked at it and like this the, the two positions that he had put on that had initially gone down but one was down two thirds that had that had run to like twenty dollars so from twenty cents to twenty dollars wow. the other one had <laughs> was like up to $10. So it was like seven or eight times. And the one that had doubled had then also proceeded to run up like another 20 times. So he, the lesson, so to his credit, he was like, well, it turns out that this stuff really does work. And he was he was in the positions that had run up that much. He was getting more out of them in dividends than he had paid to buy them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he was like, this is this because is, Australian companies tend to pay more in dividends. They tend to, because you yeah. get this franking credit, which just basically grosses up the tax you pay 
the company's paid, you get that back, basically. And so you, you then pay tax at your marginal rate adjusted for this number. So that, that you can look at the yield on Australian companies that tend to be like 5 or 6%. They're, pretty, they're incentivized to pay out their capital and shareholders um, like it in Australia. So that, like that was, that's a really, if you were that kind of investor, if you had put these positions on and been very disciplined about not selling them, or just every year you put whatever it is, whatever you save up for the, over the course of the year and buy, you save up $10,000, you buy your three best ideas, whatever it is, and then you come back to it five or seven years later and it's paying out that kind of money like all of a sudden you've turned into that's a real compounding machine because then you can take those ideas that would have been the idea of course then as soon as he went in there and he started he was using it and trading it all the time the returns went away yeah right right. (laughs) it's cruel it's so cruel it's such a it's there's such a huge cognitive behavioral part to investing that it's hard to communicate to someone who hasn't been through those ups and downs I've always been curious, and you probably know more about this than me, but I was curious if there's any stock pickers out there that equal weight positions on the at the onset. Well, I do. Um, I, I don't know if they're – I think that – yeah, I don't know. I think that there are probably some guys who run uh, – probably that's more a function of the kind of structure that you're running. So if you're running a mutual fund, you may tend to kind of – you might put them on at I'm, 3 I'm or 4%. More, con- more concentrated, like – 20 positions or less, but equal weighted. Like everything's going to be a 5% position or something like that. Well, I do, I do do that. And the reason that I do it like that is that I just don't know which of the 30 positions is the best position. Even though I can see that one is, more, you know, there's on a ratio basis, one is at a lower ratio than another one. But it's conceivable that the one that's on the lower ratio isn't as good a business as the one that's on a higher ratio. And it's in fact, the one on a higher ratio is more undervalued. But then you also don't know what's going to happen in the future. They might, mm-hmm. If they get a little bit of luck and you're in one of these things and it works, you can get pretty good returns. But then I have this rebalancing mechanism on a quarterly basis where I like to take money away from the ones that have worked and put okay. it into the ones that haven't worked. And you get this Shannon's demon effect where you're, kind of, you're buying stuff as it's going down and you're trimming stuff that's going up, which I think um, generates better returns over time. Have you back-tested that to see if that's... The case, like trimming, trimming the stuff's winning and putting in the things that are. Yeah, not. I mean, I, just because for that for that effect that I was, you know, often you find with these companies, like I, I buy them, you know, buy yeah. it at five dollars with seven dollars worth of, you know, this is when I was more more when I was a net net guy, but I'd buy it at five dollars when it was a seven dollar stock, it'd run to seven dollars and I'd sell it, and right. then a year later I'd see it again and now it's a now it's a three dollar stock with five dollars in cash, <laughs> like you know, it's it's. <laughs> The opportunity is there again. You can have another go at it. Right. You can get right. that little bump again. So you do kind of, it does smooth out. I think that some of the best investors, and I've certainly, when we did concentrated investing, we, we talked to uh, guys like Christian CM, and I, I know that uh, Alexander Ropers, who runs Atlantic Capital, he says the same thing. About 20% of their returns have come from trading around positions. Lou Simpson does the same thing. So if he's in something like Nike, he thinks Nike's a great business or he did at the time that the book was written and he'd be in that and then it would run up and he might, he would never be out of it. He said he was always holding some portion of it because he didn't want to, he wanted to, he just wanted to know what it was doing. And then if it kept on running, then he's just got this little position in it. And then if it comes back, it doesn't matter. But if it comes back enough, then he'd be prepared to buy a whole lot more because he, he, he knows it really well. He's known it the whole time. And if you know John Huber, who's a, 
I think John's a he's getting a lot lot more attention now, but he's been around for a long time. He wrote this great article uh, talking about different sources of advantage, different sources of edge, informational edge and behavioural edge. And he said basically the behavioural one is the biggest. If you look at something like, and I think he gives the example of J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan didn't lose money through the two thousand seven eight nine crisis. It kept on. I think it might have. It might have not grown its book value two years in a row, something like that. But it didn't go backwards at any stage through there. But you can look at the share prices. It's wildly all over the place. And he says, all you have to do is have some idea of the intrinsic value of these things. And when they're at a big discount, you buy them. Right. And right. maybe you trim them back when they're at a big... So I think that that's one of the behavioral tricks that's, that's really helpful for investors. If, you're, if you have your own calculation that's different from the share price, then you sort of you become less concerned about the way that the share price is moving and more sort of interested in how you take advantage of that. And I think it it makes it certainly works for me that I feel better when if I got a pretty good idea what something's worth and it's going backwards against me, I'm not so worried about that because I know I can buy a little bit more of it at the next rebalance date. Right. Yeah, I know paying attention to the business instead of the stock price is a hard thing. But like you said, it's like if you do the work you do your modeling, you know, you have developed sort of an intrinsic value that you believe in that you're focused on and not the stock price. That's really the only way to do it. And I think that's how the money's made in the downturn too, is, you know, focusing on that business and being those businesses hopefully that are, can weather any downturn. Or, or sort of make, get, make, make strides through a downturn. Cause that's exactly often there are these businesses that are a little bit better capitalized when they go through a period like that, they, that, that does create opportunities. If there are good managers in there who are, uh, guys who've been around through a few cycles or they're guys who've got a lot of money in the business and they know how it works. When the business gets beaten up like that, they, they're getting cu- they're buying customers, they're buying businesses, they're buying assets cheap, they're, they're really positioning themselves. And I often th- think that that's a big part of why value rips out of the bottom of one of these things because some of these businesses have gone ahead and uh, what was cheap at the trough is now even cheaper at the other side. So they, I think that's a good management you know, good business that's a good balance sheet that's able to withstand it. Very important. You mind if I ask you a couple of personal sure. questions? Sure. We can edit uh, this out later. <laughs> excellent. Yeah, and you will. Uh, <laughs> I think I think most successful people are pretty self-aware people. Um, they know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. Um, you know, this might be an uncomfortable question, but I'm just curious. What do you think are your strengths, and what do you think are your weaknesses? Oh, that's very kind of you to say that. So I really do appreciate that. <laughs> I don't regard myself necessarily as successful. So I'm, try- I'm like, I think that we're we're in the, uh, we're sort of still in the in the fight to, you know, I don't think that there's anything, you know, it's not that the success is something you assess at the end of a career or at the end of, you know, when you get there because there are a, a lot of guys blow up along the way and I don't know that I'm not going to be one of those guys. I don't want some of people, somebody showing this to me like in 10 years' time saying, hey, here's, here's you saying how successful you were. Toby, just answer the question. <laughs> so, I've definitely, like when I, when I stopped practicing law, when I, was, when I was practicing law, I think I had almost no self-awareness at all and that's probably an age thing and also, you know, thinking, being pretty impressed with myself as a lawyer. And I've got definitely got more as I've gone through. Like moving to another country tells you see different different cultures. Uh, even though I think the US and Australia are very similar, there's differences, and so that gave me a, some good insight. My wife, I think, has a very high EQ, so 
she often says that you, you did that was a dumb thing to do. You shouldn't have done that, and explains what I should have done. I'm like, oh, that, that, that was a much smarter approach. I should have done that. I think that women tend to have slightly better EQs than than men do. I think we sometimes men are like got a little bit too much ego, or maybe a little bit too much um, uh, just stubbornness or something like that. Like, don't want to say that you're wrong. Don't want to admit that you're wrong. So I've got better at that. I think I'm just. I, I've got to the point now where I. I, I'm just completely surprised whatever the market does. So I thought that I had an idea what it was going to do maybe five or 10 years ago. And now I just, I wake up every morning. I'm like, oh, that's what it's, that's what it does. So I, I don't know if that's, a, I don't know if there's any sort of great answer there. Um, but I think. No, I, I think sometimes it's, it's harder for a person to answer the strengths question just because it's more uncomfortable well, my, to answer my strengths yourself. My strengths are I have a very, very high tolerance for risk. So that's one thing that I, I found well, among just talking to people about what I do. But that it, I think it makes people very nervous when they find out, you know, the way that, you know, that there's no, I don't have a, don't have a boss, don't have a, I'm self-funded, like a self, the big project that I've, that, that is out there at the moment that I'm not allowed to talk about on, on my own podcast. <laughs> you know, I'm self-funded and I probably, there aren't very many guys out there who are self-funding one of these things. And I don't have any partners in it at all. It's just it's just me doing it, and that could be a colossal mistake. And but I think it may, and it makes I know it makes people nervous. You know, the, just because uh, I talk to various other people, like I've got a negative cash burn in it, makes me a little bit nervous. But it makes people like they're horrified when they find out, you know, <laughs> what's happening. Um, so I, that's one thing. The other thing I think you know I, I communicate reasonably well, so I write and I. I I speak reasonably well, so I try to maximize the kind of writing and talking. That's podcast and books. You know, that's why I do those things. And then I, I'm, I don't mind being, I don't mind being contrarian. I don't mind. I figure something out myself, and then I will do that thing uh, if I think it's right. You know, trying to trying to update, like doing the Bayesian probabilistic updating all the time. What new information am I getting that's changing my own view of this thing? that seems to be divergent from the market or what other people are doing. I'm either, this could be another colossal mistake or we're in this interesting position where if the market does start, so for value, let's just like value as an example, like there's no good reason to launch a value fund given what value has done over the last two years, over the last five years, over the last 10 years. But I think that if you believe in mean reversion, this could be one of the best opportunities in the last 20 years to be a value investor to be putting on value positions to be investing the way that I do which is with a deep value style I don't know whether it's going to be proven right or not I kind of hope that it will but I'm happy to sort of stand here a little bit apart from the crowd and, and let it happen mm-hmm. well I mean I, th- I think you and I have one thing in common and that's probably the negative cash flow from, <laughs> <laughs> from being a full-time investor and then you're uh, you're you're self-funding your project I, sh- I should take it public it. <laughs> the cash burn rate probably get a, like a 50 times multiple in it. So what gives it, I mean, are there, are there any times that, that you just kind of go to bed at night thinking, oh man, what am I doing? Or is it oh, every what, day, what gives, every day? Yeah. What gives you like the, the mental fortitude to be like, we're going to continue to do this because you're, you're diehard going after it. And that's one of the things I admire about you. I, I think it's just, I'm just, I've just painted myself into a corner. I can't possibly, you know, just for for ego and consistency reasons, I can't turn around. No, I don't know. I think part of it is I can look back over, so for value in particular, I can look back over that very long data set 
And you know, I've, there, every there have been five or six examples of this of this sort of underperformance. It's hurt microcaps. It's hurt everything that's not the index, basically, um, or that's not an S and P five hundred. And that's unusual. And there's nothing magical about the index. You should be rewarded for holding value stocks. They, you, if you're as a business guy, as an entrepreneur, if I say there's a way for you to like get ten times the cash flow that you're currently getting, and it's just by not buying the index, it's kept by buying this little cluster of stocks over here that have better cash flow, buying back stock, better balance sheets. Might not work this year, might not work next year, but in the fullness of time, like that's a better spot to be in. Just as a business guy, that should appeal to you intellectually and I think it does eventually the market wakes up that you know what beyond it's a 10 billion dollar market cap it only lost 30 million dollars last year but that's because that's about how big its business is you know it's not like it's not coming close to profitability on 10 billion dollars in revenues and it only lost 30 million it's like that's it's got a 30 million dollar business you know it's not even big enough to justify mm -hmm. the losses for a 10 billion dollar market cap that could be a billion dollar market cap and you'd still say well that's that's still way too big for something losing 30 million dollars a year so I think that, but you know, people see the stock price has gone up a lot. Probably going to keep on going up. There's being a value investor or just being a fundamental investor is unusual. A lot of people don't do that. And the guys who are growthier. So think of an example like Ark. I, I get an enormous amount of respect for Kathy Wood, who set up that family of of ETFs. They've she's gutsed it out to like get $7 billion in assets in that thing. And they're doing these really contrarian out there picks with Tesla and Bitcoin and all of these other companies. But there are examples of at the, at the peak of every single boom in the market, there have been these go-go mutual funds, you know, mm -hmm. in the sixties, the go-go mutual funds. And then the, the late 1990s, the Janus funds, all these different funds that were crushed into tech or crushed into whatever was hot. And people weren't in them because, uh, it didn't make sense to them, but in the paradigm of the day, it does make sense. They've all been washed away following the, the unusual period in the market. So I think you have to be, you need to have a longer term perspective and imagine what, I, what happens to whatever your strategy is in a more normal environment. And I think that in a more normal environment, value will do quite well and it'll be much tougher for the very high growth kind of uh, new paradigm type investors. Mm -hmm. well, next personal question. <laughs> Some, somehow we took that one to investing. But, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yes, exactly. Plan's working. What's the hardest thing you ever had to go through and how did you go, get through it? Oh, uh, I've, I've launched this new thing. Uh, so I've got to tell you, uh, <laughs> at the end of it. I wasn't a setup for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I've been very, I've been very lucky. I haven't had any major health scares. I haven't had any, in, and, and including in, when I say, I like in my close family and my in my kids and my wife. That's all very been very lucky. All of that. It was tough moving. The, the hard it was very hard to, it was hard moving countries, and then starting again with no network. And when I, you know, I meet somebody and I'd say I went to this university in Australia, and like nobody's ever heard of this university in Australia. But in Australia, it's a good university. It's one of the one of the top universities in Australia, but no one's heard of it here. So I have no network here. I have no like indicia of who I am. You know, my um, I'm not able to say I went to this. You know, this brand. I'm associated with this brand. You know, this college. I'm associated with this college. I'm just sort of like you've never heard of me before, and there's no way to judge, you know, my competence or otherwise. So the way that yeah. I got around that was I just 
started writing and talking and I've slowly, slowly built up a network of people who I know and interacted with them so that they know that I'm not, you know, a lunatic, that I behave, you know, reasonably sensibly, like some evidence of some thought process going on behind the eyeballs. You know? So this, I, I think that that's, that's kind of how I got over it. It's, but it's, in another sense, it's sort of been a blessing because it's made me, I'm very independent. I kind of got that I don't really need to rely on anybody else. The business as it stands now, it just has to keep on doing what it's doing. We will eventually get there and we will eventually be successful. And I, I've got, um, you know, on one hand, I'm quite pessimistic about the prospects for the market and other things like that. And on another hand, I'm just this wild-eyed optimist that, yeah, it's probably going to work out. You know, most businesses <laughs> fail. Mine's not going to fail. I'm going to, this is going to work out. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that he mentioned, you know, coming over here really with no friends, colleagues, nobody knew who, knew who you were. And I, I think that's probably one of your biggest strengths. I know, I think I met you for the first time, was it five years ago at a conference? I remember very clearly. I remember very clearly meeting you, yeah. And I remember hearing your name before that. And I remember sitting on your presentation and uh, I wanted to make it a, a point to get up and introduce myself to you afterwards. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this guy is probably going to be, you know, he's a tall, good looking guy, speaks well. He's probably going to be some a-hole, you know, you know, and right away, within 15 seconds, you know, I realized you're just a real genuinely nice person that oh, that's kind and we end up going to dinner together yeah. and spending another two hours together and i think that's probably one of your i think biggest strengths as well is because within about 10 seconds people feel comfortable around you well that's good that's um, kind and i and I, know you, I know you like working in solitude and <laughs> contrarian mindset but i think that's a gift that you have that you can that you'll probably go on to do bigger things with. Well, that's kind, man. I, I do. I remember that. I remember it very vividly because you're, I don't know if, what, what your avatar, I can't remember your immediate av- avatar now, but you used to have this black and white avatar. It's stenciled. The stencil avatar. <laughs> and I thought this guy's got this uh, really intimidating look on his face and he's got the black and white avatar, which means he's not messing around. You know, he's here for, <laughs> he, he's, uh, I'm, I'm like, he's going to be this really kind of, uh, you know, dominating personality. And then, no, of course, you're a very friendly, fun guy. So we had a great time. <laughs> Last question. Um, maybe to help set this up, you know, a couple of years ago, I started thinking about regret a little bit in my own life, you know, what would, you know, if looking forward 10 years, what would I regret not doing and trying? And for me, it was my own investment strategy. But I'm curious for you now, you know, you're, you're the thing that you just launched is going to be successful <laughs> that we can't talk about. Um, but I'm just curious, what's next? Like, what's something in 10 years, if you look back, that you would be really disappointed in yourself if you wouldn't have tried or launched? And maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be something business-wise. But... Well, I, 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 I had that when I, I was a, when I was about to turn thirty, I was still a lawyer, not doing what I wanted to do, and I had that time. I had that. Oh my God! I'm nearly thirty. I haven't started doing what I want to do. Time is running out. If you want to do something, you got to go now and and start doing it. And I think that that was right. If that, my only regret really is that I didn't start earlier, I should have just. The, this is the thing that, and I would I would want to say this to my own kids: don't do what, don't. Don't chase money early on. Don't do what you think your parents want you to do. Do the thing that you think that you are good at. That 
if, if you get to the end of your life and you haven't done it, you would just like, there's nothing worse. I can't imagine anything worse. So I've had this view since then, you know, I'll try anything. I'll try it. If it, if it makes sense, if I can kind of think through it, I think there's a chance it'll work. I'm prepared to try it and look stupid doing it. I take that to the investments too. I'll put a, you know, often these investments have everybody thinks the value guys have had a look at them too. They don't think they're good ideas. I'm like, you know what? It's not over for some of these businesses and it's not, assured for some of these other ones either you, you you are paid for kind of taking the little position and trying something out so i'm doing the things now that i would be really upset if i hadn't done them in 10 years time mm-hmm. um so i i'm you know I'm like the french foreign legion je ne regret rien i regret nothing <laughs> <laughs> excellent well we'll leave it at that i uh it's been an honor turning the tables on you, interviewing you for uh, on your own podcast. I, I'm sure most of the people in, in your audience know how to get in contact with you, but if they want to learn more about The Acquires Multiple, go read his book if you haven't. It's a great book. Buy a few copies. I read it a few times. Uh, you can check out acquiresmultiple.com. You can follow Toby at Greenbacked on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, you should be on there. A lot of other great FinTwit people are on there. It's a great way to follow Toby, me, or anybody else. And if you can't find Toby, just put his name in the search box. You'll be able to find them. Um, if you'd like to see my portfolio, I'll just say this. If you'd like to see my yeah. portfolio, uh, you can go to acquirersfunds.com and I'll try and put a link up there so you can click through really easily to find... If you're interested in the stocks that I hold long and short, you can you can take a look there. But I just want to say, th- Ian, thanks so much. It's been so much fun. I was so happy when you suggested that you'd, you'd come and do the interview. I was a little bit worried because that old black and white avatar, I thought I was going to get the third... <laughs> The third degree. I was going to get cross-examined. <laughs> no, I'm pretty friendly. I was going to feel the sting no. of those management teams when you go in to put them under the under the microscope. Oh, yes. Yeah, that could be another podcast. <laughs> well, we should do that. <laughs> yeah, we should. All right. Thanks, Toby. Have a great one. Thanks. Toby will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anytime. <laughs> thanks, Ian.